Let's turn together in the Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're going to read this morning from verse 48 to the end of the chapter. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him. But I know him, and if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Our Father, as we sang in that last song, you are the holy God and all praises do you. And Lord, when we consider how much praise we give you, how much honor we give you, how much worship we give you, Lord, we recognize that we are in and of ourselves irreverent and ungodly, and we don't give you the praise that is due you. which makes your love for us all the more amazing, that you love us and that you've saved us and that you forgive us despite our sinfulness, that you welcome us and give us eternal life. You truly are amazing, Lord, and we're grateful to know you. We're grateful to be here this morning. We're grateful to sing your praises. We're grateful as your children, Lord, to hear from you. And Father, I pray that you take this time this morning, you take the reading and the preaching of your word and the preaching of your Son, Jesus Christ, you would magnify him, you would glorify him, you would glorify your name, you would destroy and abase all flesh, all human boasting, and that every one of us this morning, Lord, by reflecting on Jesus and who he is and what he's done, we would turn our eyes away from ourselves and away from our own pride and away from our own trophies. And Lord, we would see how beautiful and how praiseworthy Jesus is and how wonderful you are. And we would, we would have our hearts filled with praise for you this morning afresh. So do a work, we pray this morning, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. An elderly widow had four wealthy sons. And these four wealthy sons were in a friendly competition with one another over who would send her the grandest and coolest gift for her 85th birthday. And so one night they're together having a meal and they're bragging to each other about what they were going to send their mom for her 85th birthday. And one of the sons says, I got mom a brand new house, 6,000 square feet, totally, you know, decked out with a pool and everything. She's going to just love it. 
The second son said, oh, I got mom a brand new Mercedes Benz. She's going to love it. The third son said, I got, I'm getting mom for her 85th birthday, the top of the line home theater system. All the best stuff. It's going to be awesome. She's going to love it. The fourth son says, well, you know how mom just loved to read the Bible? And she can't anymore because she can't see. She's lost her eyesight. And you know how totally incompetent she is with CD players and tapes and all that. Well, I heard about a parrot. And there's only one of its kind. It can recite the entire Bible. And all you need to do is, is just tell the parrot chapter and verse. And the parrot can just start reciting the Bible right from there. It took 20 preachers 20 years to train this parrot. It's costing me $2 million. I'm going to be paying over a period of 10 years. But I know it's worth it. She's going to love it. And I love my mom. And all, this, all the other brothers are impressed. Well, yeah, that really is the greatest gift. So the birthday goes by and the mom receives her gifts and she sends out her thank you letters. Dear Milton, thank you for the house. It's a little big. I only use one room. All the other rooms aren't even being used, but I appreciate your thought. Dear Marvin, thank you for the car. I don't really drive anymore. I'm perfectly happy with my old car, but it's a, it's a nice car. Uh, it'll look nice in my garage. I appreciate the thought. Dear Michael, thank you for the beautiful home theater system. I don't really uh, know how to use it, and I can't really see anything anyway, but it's nice that you thought to get me that. Thank you. And Melvin. Thank you, Melvin for the most wonderful and thoughtful gift. You know what I love. You are the only one to put some real sense into your gift. I thank you. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> now nobody wants a gift of immense value to be mistaken for something of little value, right? If you put a lot of effort and work into a gift and it's very costly, you don't want the person who receives the gift to think that it's not. And even more tragic is when a beautiful and costly gift of love is misunderstood, disregarded, or even maligned. That's a tragic thing, isn't it? Now, the passage that we read this morning, John 8, 48 to, 40 to 59, is about just such a failure to understand and to appreciate the gift of God. True? The passage that we read is about just this kind of a failure, and not only a failure to understand what God has given and a failure to appreciate the worth and the beauty and the value of what God has given. But what we see here in this passage is also positive hatred for the gift and for the gift giver. So the gift is maligned as well, even though God has given this beautiful gift. The passage that we read concludes a long conversation that began in verse 12 between Jesus and, his, and the Jewish audience that he's speaking with in Jerusalem. This conversation is a part of a broader context of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And you'll remember beginning in chapter 7, Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And chapter 7 all the way through chapter 8 is Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And chapter 8 concludes this time at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was here at the feast that Jesus proclaimed himself to be the one who gives the water of life. Right? In chapter 7, you remember. If anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. And it's here in verse 12 of chapter 8, Jesus proclaimed himself to be the light of the world. If anyone follows me, they won't walk in darkness. I'm the one who brings truth. I'm the one who brings reality into this world so you can see what life is about. You can see who God is. You can see who you are. You can see the way to go. And if you follow me, you won't stumble. You'll have life. What an awesome 
thing to proclaim, amen? But unfortunately, instead of being enthusiastically received, Jesus was resisted. They hated this message. Because what was he proclaiming? What was his message? What was reality according to Jesus? Well, Jesus was preaching according to John chapter 7, verse 7. Go back to John chapter 7 again and look at verse 7. He says, The world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Now, Jesus is bringing good news into the world, but it begins, the good news begins with reality. And the reality is, is that every single person in this world, whether you're Gentile, whether you're Jewish, whether you're an adulterer, whether you're a member of the Sanhedrin, you're guilty before God. You are not good. You are evil in the sight of God. All of your righteousnesses are filthy rags. And Jesus was proclaiming this light and this truth to the world. God is totally perfect, pure, and righteous. And his law proclaims that if someone is going to be righteous before God and accepted before him on the basis of obedience, they have to be perfect as God is perfect. Nobody is perfect. Everyone is evil and guilty and perishing. That's Jesus' message. So they didn't like that. Although, when you see the truth about who you are and who God is, it's not only about seeing that you're a sinner and that you're perishing in the light of God's blazing righteousness and holiness, but also Jesus was proclaiming himself as the Savior. Whoever believes in me will not perish. I came into the world and I came to give my flesh. I came to give my life so that whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will not perish but have everlasting life. So the way of salvation isn't by law-keeping and it isn't by obeying commandments. It's by faith in me and what I'm going to do. You believe in me, you'll be saved by pure grace. Isn't that a good news? Isn't that a wonderful thing to preach? And yet it was resisted. They didn't like this message of perfect righteousness and salvation by grace. And in the passage that we looked at last week, which is right before the one that we have read this morning, Jesus puts his finger on the reason why people resist this gospel. And the reason is, is because they are children of the devil. That is, they prefer lies to the truth. They have a murderous hatred towards grace because grace takes away all grounds for boasting. That's what the scripture says, right? Not of works, but by grace so that no one can boast. And so they were children of the devil, preferring unreality to the reality because of what that reality meant for them. If they hated Jesus' claim to be the giver of the water of life and to be the light of the world, the Jews we see here will go berserk when he fully reveals himself to be, I am. Reynolds Price the late James B. Duke Professor of English Literature at Duke University. So this guy, he was, he's passed away. But he was a teacher of English Literature at Duke University. That's pretty high up on the scale in academia in our country. He wrote an introduction to the Gospel of John, an analysis of the Gospel of John. He wasn't an Orthodox Christian by any means. But here's what he said about this passage that we read from verse 48 to 59. Reynolds Price said, I'm aware of no more audacious scene in literature. Now that's a pretty amazing thing for him to say, being a professor of literature at Duke University who's very well versed in literature. He says here, I am aware of no more audacious scene in literature, nor of one more carefully built toward its climax a blinding, unforeseeable bloom of vast megatonnage. That's how this professor describes this very section that we just read. He's impressed by it. In other words, there's an utterly unprecedented claim that is made in this passage that has eternal and universal consequences. Jesus makes a claim like no other person in all of literature. 
John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world, thank you, Brad, that he gave his only begotten Son. God's love for the world prompted him to give his Son. And this morning we're going to consider the gift of God, Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at the two different responses to it that are spoken of in the text that we read. And these two different responses to the gift of God's Son are responses that we see in the text that happened long ago. And these are two different responses that have continued to happen uh, ever since and even today. Two different ways people respond to God's amazing gift of Jesus. I'd like to divide this sermon up into three sections. Number one, we're going to look at the gift misunderstood and maligned. The gift misunderstood and maligned. Secondly, the gift delighted in. And then thirdly, we'll close by considering the true value and beauty of the gift of God. So first of all, the gift misunderstood and maligned. So let us first look at how completely misunderstood Jesus was. And Jesus is the gift. So God has given this gift, and it's totally misunderstood. Notice how this passage begins in verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So here's what they think about Jesus, the gift of God. Aren't we right in saying you're crazy? Aren't we right in saying you're demon-possessed? Why do they call him a Samaritan? Well, if you remember, the Samaritans challenged the legitimacy of the Jews, uh, the Jewish claim to be the children of God. So the Samaritans and the Jews were in competition over who was the true people of God. And the, the Jews said the Samaritans were actually illegitimate. They are not really the real you know, line of Abraham. And the Samaritans said the Jews were not really the true line of Abraham. We saw that in John chapter 4. And Jesus sides with the Jews, actually, and says, yeah, the Jewish people, they are the ones who are actually the line of Abraham through whom salvation comes. But they think Jesus is a Samaritan because Jesus himself is challenging their legitimate claim to be the children of Abraham, right? In this passage, he's sounding kind of like a Samaritan. He's saying, you guys aren't the children of Abraham. If you were, you'd do the works of Abraham, but really you're the children of the devil. And so they say, see, you're a Samaritan. We knew it. You're not for us. You're against us. Although the, whereas the Samaritans challenged their claim on physical grounds, Jesus challenged their claim to be the children of Abraham on spiritual grounds. And therefore, they thought Jesus was demonic. Like those Samaritans, they're opposed to the work of God, and so are you, Jesus, and that's from the devil. So he says they're from the devil, and they say he's from the devil. That's what they think of Jesus. But look how this passage ends in verse 58. Here's what Jesus really is. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The one that they think is a Samaritan and a demon is, in fact, their God. Isn't that amazing? These are very sincere and zealous religious people. And they have totally misunderstood their God when their God comes among them and begins proclaiming the truth about who he is. They say, you're, you're a Samaritan. So we see here how little they really knew God. How far, they, how far from God they really were, just as Jesus has been saying. They mistook the bringer of light for the bringer of darkness. They mistook God for a demon. And brothers and sisters, that is a very dark place to be when you encounter the living and the true God and you think that the living and the true God is a Samaritan and a demon. That is a dark place to be. And yet today the world still is like that, isn't it? That is how the wisdom of the world thinks about God. When they hear the preaching of God, when the world today hears the preaching of righteousness, and they hear the preaching of grace, and they hear the preaching of Jesus, and they hear the preaching that no one is good, and everyone is perishing, and everyone deserves hell, and the only way to be saved is through grace, what does the wisdom of the world say? So they say, yeah, that's God, that's him, right? 
Yeah, that's the truth. No, what they say is, you, your idea of God is demonic, crazy. And you people who follow such an such a idea of God, you guys are illegitimate children of God. You're not the real deal, right? You guys have a demon. So nothing has really changed at all. It's preposterous to them. But we see here, not only do they misunderstand the gift of God, they totally don't see who Jesus is. We see they, they also hate him in this, in this passage. Look at verse 59. They want to stone Jesus. They want to kill him. And there's a sense through the whole conversation, I don't know if you notice this or if you feel this, but there's a sense through the whole conversation that they don't really want to understand who Jesus is, right? They're not patiently trying to ask questions here. Okay, Jesus, you've done a whole bunch of really impressive miracles, and you're saying some things that are really hard to accept, but let me patiently ask you some more. You know, can you please explain to me? I'm having a hard time understanding. You don't get the sense that they want to understand at all. Look at verse 43. We saw this last week. Jesus says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You can't hear my word because you hate what I'm saying. And so you're not even taking the time to try to understand it. You're just completely misunderstanding what I'm saying because you don't want to hear the truth. That's a dark place to be. Why do they hate the truth? Why do they hate Jesus? Be they hate Jesus precisely because Jesus honors the Father. Look at verse 49. Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's verse 48. Verse 49 says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father. That's why you think I have a demon. You think I have a demon because I'm honoring my Father. I'm honoring who he is. I'm honoring his word. I'm honoring his law. I'm honoring his righteousness. I'm honoring his truth. And therefore, you hate me and think I'm crazy and have a demon because like the devil, you hate God. And you prefer lies. And you prefer seeking your own glory. Now in verse 50, Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory. What I think he means here is, when I say to you, you dishonor me, I'm not complaining. I'm not pining for your approval. I'm not whining and saying, you guys don't glorify me. You guys don't honor me. You guys don't approve of me. I'm not looking for your approval. The only approval that matters to me is God's approval. But I want you to honor God. And you can't honor God unless you honor me and you're not honoring me because you hate God. So Jesus says, I'm not seeking your praise. He says in verse 50, there is one who seeks, and he's referring to his Father. Remember in John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that the Father seeks men and women to worship him in spirit and in truth. There is one who seeks his glory. And you can't worship him in spirit and in truth without honoring his son, Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter how pious a person may look, and it doesn't matter how religious they may look, and it doesn't matter how much they say they honor God and they love God and they worship God. If they don't honor Jesus Christ, then they're not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. They're actually resisting God, and they're of their father the devil. It's a sober thing. There is one who seeks, and he adds this sober point, and who judges as well. Let's just think about that this morning. There is one who seeks his glory and who judges. What an amazing statement. May we all worship the Father in spirit and truth, that we may not be judged with the world. And what does it mean, again, to worship him in spirit and truth? Well, it's to worship him not in your own works, not in your own efforts, not in the flesh, but through Jesus Christ and in the truth of who you are, recognizing who you are. I mean, we come this morning, right? And we, we come to worship God. Do you come to worship God so that you may get, 
gain God's approval and gain God's favor and gain God's salvation, gain God's, uh, gain his gift of eternal life? Is that why you come on Sunday morning? Now, a lot of people do that. They come to church and they think that's what they need to do in order to be saved or to be right with God. And if you do that, then unfortunately you're not really worshiping God in spirit. You're worshiping in the flesh. And you're not worshiping him in truth either because the truth is you can't earn God's salvation and you have to just come through Jesus Christ by faith alone. And then when you have that salvation, you worship him not to gain it, but because you have it, because you love him for what he's done for you, because you're grateful. It's remarkable that even though they're misunderstanding Jesus and even though they're maligning him, in verse 51, despite all this hostility, Jesus holds forth salvation to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, if anyone receives what I'm saying, this truth from God, if you accept it, if you believe it, if you hope in it, you will never see death. And this is a wonderful promise. We should rejoice in this. They should have rejoiced in this, but they misunderstood him again, didn't they? And they maligned him again. They definitely don't want to understand him. In, the, in their response to him, they say, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. The prophets died. I, I get the sense they're hot in the face. You know, they're not thinking coolly and rationally here. They're just like, what do you mean no one's going to die? Abraham died. The prophets died. Are you better than them? Who do you think you are? They're taking Jesus' words in a crass, literal sense. They don't realize what he's saying is, if you believe in me, because, I've, because of what I will do, because I will be the one who takes your death for you, that sting and death will be gone. There will be no more wrath, no more condemnation for you. You will have eternal life. But they can't understand him. And they think he's just puffing himself up. Who do you make yourself out to be? They accuse him of self-aggrandizement, which is the opposite of what Jesus is doing. And in response to Jesus, in, ver uh, in response to them, in verse 54 and 55, Jesus again says, you've got it all backwards, guys. I'm not seeking my own glory. I don't care about human praise. I'm not trying to puff myself up before you. The only praise and the approval that matters is from God, and you don't know him because you don't know me, the one who honors his word and keeps it. So we see in this text, Jesus, the gift of God who came into the world to bless, is not only misunderstood, but he's maligned because people hate God and the truth that he brings. Now we see also in this passage, not only that the gift is misunderstood and maligned, but God be praised, the gift of God is also delighted in. It's also delighted in. Despite the flood of demonic hostility against God, hostility is not the only response to the gift of God. And I'd like us to look at verse 56 together. Because here we see someone who rejoiced to see Jesus. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. I'd like to share a quote from Charles Spurgeon, which I think is just totally... Um, excellent. And Spurgeon says this, much might be said in Abraham's favor, but there is no word of commendation which could possibly exceed this utterance of Jesus. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Let this stand as the very crown jewel among all the gems that make up Abraham's crown, that he saw the day of Christ through the mist of 2,000 years or thereabouts, and saw it that his heart was gladdened at the sight. Do you think that Spurgeon is right? That if, any, if anything could be said about Abraham in his favor, this is the thing above all. 
In fact, we know Abraham's character. He didn't really have a very good family life, right? The Bible doesn't really tell us much about his good deeds at all. In fact, I don't think we're told about his good deeds. Uh, he's not pointed to as a man. Look how good Abraham was. Look how, how nice this man was. Look at all his service that he did. We don't see that. But what we do see in the Old Testament and what Jesus is pointing to here is, look how Abraham believed and loved God. And he rejoiced. He saw the day of Christ and he rejoiced in the day of Christ. That's what makes Abraham, Abraham. Amen? I mean, when you think of Abraham and how the Bible commends him as righteous, do you think of this or do you think of something else? And Spurgeon goes on to say, there may be many good things that might be truly said of you, dear friends, but the best thing that ever can be said of you is they saw Christ's day and were glad. Whatever else you do not see, if you see this, all is well with you. True? What do you guys think? I mean, if you see the day of Christ and are glad, do you think that's enough? Or do you think the Bible says, oh, that's great. You see the day of Christ and are glad. That's awesome, but that's not enough. You've got to do all this other stuff too. Spurgeon says, all is well with you. I do not think that anything better than this could be said of Abraham and nothing better, better will be said of any of you than this testimony from the lips of Christ himself. He saw my day and was glad. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to say this morning that this is what Christianity is all about. I don't know what you thought Christianity was all about. I don't know if you thought that Christianity was about improving yourself Christianity was about trying to prove to God you're the real deal. But Christianity is actually all about seeing Christ and seeing Christ through whom we see God and being glad. That is what Christianity is all about. It's about receiving him and believing in the revelation that Jesus brings, not hating it, not rejecting it, but embracing it and being glad in that truth. And that, brothers and sisters, is how you know that you are a child of Abraham and a child of God. Do you rejoice in who Jesus is and in the truth of him and in the truth of God, or do you hate it? That's it. What is your attitude to him, toward him and toward the truth? And we're encouraged here in verse 56 as well that it is simply by seeing Jesus that we become glad. Is that true in your own life? I mean, I don't know about you, but I go through lots of times of dryness and not being glad, and it's always because I'm not seeing Jesus, right? And not seeing his day. Forgetting. And I'm getting my eyes off of him and getting my eyes onto other things. Forgetting who God is and Everything just dries up, doesn't it? But when I see his day, and I see what, beautiful, what a beautiful gift Jesus is, and I see what good he's done for me, then I rejoice in him and I'm glad. You know, if you looked in, if Abraham saw ahead to the day of Christ and it wasn't about grace, and what he saw there was just another lawgiver who gave some more rules, and we had to keep those rules in order to be saved. I don't think he would have saw his day and rejoiced and have been glad, right? He might have saw his day and been depressed. But when we see him for who he is, we rejoice. Now, what did Abraham see? Is there a reference in Scripture that says Abraham saw the day of Christ? Well, even if we couldn't put our finger on a reference in Scripture, we would believe that Abraham saw the day of Christ because Christ here says that he did. Although I think we can say more, we can say more about this. It's interesting that the Jews themselves believed that Abraham saw forward to the days of the Messiah. And they considered Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham was put into a deep sleep and God uh, passed through the, the animal sacrifices that were laying there on the ground as a flaming oven and a torch. And if you remember when God did that, in Abraham's sleep, he showed him uh, the future of his people, that they would be in bondage in Egypt and that God would bring them out of Egypt. Now that's all basically that God says to Abraham. 
He says, they'll be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. I will redeem them and bring them to this land. And Jewish readers of the Bible believe that what Abraham saw there was not just, you know, in the ancient world, God would get them out of Egypt and bring them to the land, but that he saw into the days of the Messiah where God would bless Israel and bring them into the land. So, so the, the idea that Abraham saw the days of the Messiah wasn't controversial. When Jesus said this, that wasn't controversial. What was controversial is that he says, Abraham saw my day. So basically what he's saying is, not just Abraham saw the days of the Messiah, but Abraham saw the days of the Messiah, and the Messiah is me. My day. Well, when did Abraham see Jesus' day? And what day did he see? Was it, was it the first coming of Jesus that Jesus is referring to here? Was it the second coming of Jesus that Jesus was referring to here? Did Abraham see the first? Did he see the second? Did he see both? Well, I think it's pretty clear that he saw both. And I think we can see farther than those Jewish readers of the Bible could see. The whole fabric of Abraham's relationship with God and the content of Abraham's faith involved understanding and delighting in the Messiah. You think that's true? The fabric of his relationship with God and the content of his faith. Abraham was aware, undoubtedly, of Genesis chapter 3.15. When Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, God gave a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, the head of the serpent. He would do that. And there was a promise right there of the Messiah in a simple form. And Abraham would have known about this. And so when Abraham, when God comes to Abraham and promises to Abraham that through your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, I think it's quite clear that Abraham would have connected those two promises and realized what God is saying to me is that this promise that he gave to mankind in the very beginning is somehow ultimately going to be fulfilled through me. So again, the fabric of his relationship with God and the content of his faith is messianic, is looking forward to the blessing that will come through the seed of the woman and then through him. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham and many of the patriarchs, all of the patriarchs, they died not receiving the promises, but they saw them afar off. And they embraced them. That is, they didn't resist them. They didn't buck against them. They didn't hate them. They, they delighted in what they saw. And they died in faith, believing. And the author of Hebrews tells us that they looked forward to a home that God would build for them. So they're sojourners on the earth. They're recognizing that, you know what? Until God fulfills his promise through the Messiah, we don't have any permanent home. And we're going to die in faith, believing that God will one day, through fulfilling his promises in the Messiah, give us that home and that rest and that blessing from all the curse, from all our works, from all our enemies. We'll be at peace through God. He saw this and he trusted in it. I think next, Abraham saw the Messiah when he encountered this man called Melchizedek. You'll remember after Abraham returns from his defeat of the kings, he meets, and this is all we know about him in, the old, in this story in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, but he meets a king who is a priest, the king of Salem, later to be Jerusalem. And we know from scripture later that Jesus is the fulfillment of this type and he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So whatever Melchizedek was, whatever Melchizedek did, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that shadow. And Abraham met this man Melchizedek, and he says here that Melchizedek blessed him, and that Abraham 
honored him by paying a tenth of all of his spoils, basically recognizing this indeed is the priest. This indeed is the priest of the Most High God who's giving me his blessing. And I think Abraham saw in Melchizedek also a shadow of the seed to come, the king and the priest that God would give and that God would bless him and the world through. Are there any other places in the life of Abraham that he could have seen the Messiah? Well, Abraham was given a promise of a seed in his old age. So Abraham knew the Messiah was coming through him, but then he found himself not having any children. And then in his old age, God says he will give him children. He re- God rejects Ishmael as his child. And he says, no, it will not be through Ishmael Your seed will be called through Isaac, a son I will give you through Sarah, someone who cannot have any children naturally. And he also gave Abraham the ritual of circumcision, which is the removal of the flesh. In all of these things, the promise of a seed in old age, the rejection of Ishmael, and the ritual of circumcision, I think Abraham would have detected that whatever God is going to do through my seed, it's not going to be based upon human effort true? That what Abraham is learning from God and the ways of God is that human flesh and human effort will not be involved. And so Abraham gets another glimpse into the days of the Messiah. God is going to bless me and going to bless this world through a seed who will be a king, who will be a priest, and it will be independent of human effort. God will be the one who's going to do the work. And then lastly, and I think this is the one that most commentators would point to, that Abraham probably saw the Messiah in the binding of his son Isaac. When his son Isaac was a teenager, God says, okay, I've promised you this seed through Isaac. Now I want you to take him and I want you to bind him and I want you to sacrifice him. And in that story, Abraham would have seen prefigured the death of his seed that was to come as a sacrifice for sin. And when God finally stopped and said, don't do it, Abraham, withhold your hand from harming the boy, Abraham proceeded to tell his son that God will provide a sacrifice and it will be seen in the mount of the Lord. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean here when Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and was glad, it doesn't mean that Abraham necessarily had a vision of Jesus and he saw in a vision or in a dream uh, Jesus himself and him crucified. But through the promises that were given to Abraham and through the lessons that God showed Abraham taken together, Abraham had an understanding of what was coming and delighted in it. He rejoiced. And the scripture gives this testimony of Abraham. He believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. And therefore, Abraham had a, had a uh, he shared in the salvation that Messiah would bring because he believed God. And we know in the New Testament, we're taught that if we too will simply believe that we are also therefore the children of Abraham and are blessed with believing Abraham. So it really comes down to whether you see Christ, whether you understand him, and whether you believe and rejoice in what you see. So brothers and sisters, if you want joy, then open your eyes and see his day. Abraham looked forward, we look back and forward, don't we? We rejoice to see the day that Christ came 2,000 years ago when God sent his only begotten son into the world who actually fulfilled all of those shadows and he was bound and he was slain on behalf of us and for our sins. We rejoice in his condescension to save us and to sacrifice himself. We also rejoice to see his coming day, don't we? We rejoice that Jesus is coming again. He's coming to rule. He's coming as the king of kings. And he's coming to bring all the effects of his first coming when he died on the cross. He's coming again to give us total peace, total rest, total deliverance from the devil. And we rejoice. So we have these two 
different responses to the gift of God in this text. Many misunderstand and malign him, but others who are like Abraham understand him and delight. And I'd like just to close this morning with one further thought on the true value and beauty of the gift. The true value and beauty of the gift. Now we've already noticed that the gift is the Son of God. But when we realize who the Son actually is, and we see his true value, and when we realize why the Son was given, and we see the true beauty of the gift, then we'll truly be amazed at how awesome and grand this gift that God has for you really is. In verse, seven, in verse 57, after Jesus says that Abraham saw his day, the Jews again misunderstand and malign him, and they say, you've seen Abraham? Which is kind of a funny thing to say because he said in the last verse, Abraham saw me. But they say, you've seen Abraham? I wonder if just the way Jesus put it, when he said, Abraham saw my day, if just the look on his face and the way he spoke just kind of betrayed the idea that, that Jesus had actually seen Abraham for himself. You've seen Abraham. And then in verse 58, Jesus drops the biggest bombshell that he had till then dropped upon them. And he begins with this oath. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now we already heard from John the Baptist that before John the Baptist was born, Christ was. Remember when John the Baptist says, he, has, he is greater than I am because he was, he was before me. So we know he was before John the Baptist, and Jesus here says that he was before Abraham. Was he before anything else? I think of Psalm 90 verse 2, which says, Before the mountains were brought forth, and ever you formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we learn in the Gospel of John that Jesus is not just older than John the Baptist, and he's not just older than Moses, but he's also older than creation itself. For in the beginning was the Word, and all things were created by him and for him. Jesus here in this verse 58 is not merely establishing his antiquity, but he's establishing and proclaiming his divinity as well. This is an unmistakable declaration that Jesus, this man, is God. D.A. Carson says that the, in conformity with John's prologue, Jesus takes to himself one of the most sacred of divine expressions of self-reference. And G. Campbell Morgan comments on this verse, These are the words of the most impudent blasphemer that ever spoke, or the words of God incarnate. There is no other option here. So either Jesus is in fact telling the truth or he is, as Morgan says, an impudent blasphemer. When I was preparing for this sermon, I googled people who have called themselves God or proclaimed themselves to be God. There's actually not very many in history. And the ones that I found who had proclaimed themselves to be God were all mentally ill or on drugs. All of them. And there's not many. And no one believed them. No one who has ever proclaimed themselves to be the I am has ever been believed except for Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And so what we see here, brothers and sisters, and let's not miss this, that the gift that God gave, when for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the gift that God gave us, you, the gift that God gave you, is not some creature. It's not some chance. It's not some program. It's not something external to himself. 
But the gift of God is the gift of God himself. This is what God has given to you. I mean, it would be a tragedy to miss this, wouldn't it? And I think even as Christians, we kind of go about our day and forget this, don't we? But God loves you so much that he gave you himself. And when we realize who the gift really is, not some man, not some creature, not some leader, but God himself, it staggers the mind and the heart when we also realize why and for what end and purpose God gave himself to us. Because God himself came into the world not just to talk to us, but to take our place on that altar to be bound and to be sacrificed and to die for us. Who? For malignant sinners. Sinners who don't reverence him. Sinners who misunderstand him intentionally. Sinners who disregard and are hostile toward him. Enemies, the scriptures tells us, it's for us that he came and for us that he died. And God the Son came into the world and was shamed for us to take away and cover our shame. How many of you want to be ashamed on Judgment Day? How many of you want to be ashamed today, right? How many of you hate shame as much as I do? But the truth is, apart from Christ, we are shameful. And if we're not shamed today, it's just because we hide. And there's a day coming when everything will be made known. And if you are not covered, you will be ashamed. But God loves you and does not want you to be shamed. Think about that for a moment. And so he came into the world to take your shame so your shame can be covered. He came into the world to become a curse and to be cursed and to drink the wrath of God for you on behalf of you so that you will have the curse removed from you and there will be no condemnation for you. And he came into the world, the scripture says, and became sin even though he knew no sin so that you and I, who know no righteousness in and of ourselves, might become the righteousness of God in him. And amazingly, all of this is a gift and it's free. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? It's not, wow, that's amazing. What do I have to do to get it? I must have to do a whole bunch of stuff. No, you just have to believe. This gift is so incredible that people can't believe it's true, right? You know, these, we, in that joke, we talked about how the sons were competing to give the grandest gift. Well, friends, this is the grandest gift, and there will never be a grander gift than this. True? Can you, can you conceive of a better gift than this? And it's tragic that people malign it. Another tragedy is when people think they understand the gift and they really don't. So they think they're Christians. Oh, I understand Jesus. He's great. He's awesome. But they don't really understand what this gift is all about. It's kind of like, that was delicious chicken, right? When we fail to see that he came into the world to take all of our unrighteousness and give us righteousness as a free gift, we're essentially saying the chicken was delicious. As a Christian, day by day, when you find yourself loaded with sins, and you find yourself feeling condemned, and you find yourself, I'm no good, you know? I'm, I'm not going to make it to heaven. Jesus is wonderful. Yes, God gave him. What a beautiful gift of God. But, you know, I'm not living the way that I'm supposed to be living. I'm not doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. So it doesn't apply to me unless I perform. You're basically saying the chicken was delicious, right? Because you don't understand what he's given you. He's given you something so much more. He's given you himself to be your righteousness. Rejoice in that. His gift staggers the mind and the heart. I think of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God says, Moses, go to Egypt and deliver my people. 
And Moses answers to God, Who am I that I should bring the pe- this people, your people, out of Egypt? Who am I that I should do that? Now Moses' perspective is, I'm not worthy to do that. I'm a nobody. And these are your people. Who am I to come in to go and to deliver them? Not me, surely, somebody else. But when God said to Jesus, go and deliver my people, he could have said something a little bit similar, although different. He could have said, who am I to go deliver them? Right? Because he's not nobody, he's somebody. And them, you and me, those people, those sinners, those wretches, those wicked people. He could have said that, right? Who am I to go deliver them? Me, God the Son, holy, pure, sinless, to deliver them, sinners? And yet what does Philippians chapter 2 tells us? Philippians chapter 2 tells us that even though he was equal to God, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to God. Obedient even to the death of the cross. And so, friends, we will miss the significance of this gift if we misunderstand who Jesus is and what he came into the world to do. In verse 59, the Jews are clearly upset by this, and they pick up stones to throw, him, uh, to throw at him, and to kill him. And it says that Jesus hid himself from them. And I just want to ask this question. When Jesus hid himself from them, who was he saving and preserving? Was he saving and preserving himself, or was he saving and preserving them by walking away? Because, you know, he could have, instead of walking away, just swallowed them up in the earth, right? They deserve it. They're children of the devil, he already said. They've misunderstood him intentionally. They've maligned him. They've picked up stones to stone him, which is essentially them hating God and wanting to kill God. And he didn't have to run away from the stones afraid, right? Oh, no, they're going to kill me. Better get out of here, or else they're going to ruin God's plan. (laughs) He could have just swallowed them up. Or he could have just sent hailstones upon their own head. And they would have deserved it. But he withdraws in humility, in the beauty of his grace. Because his purpose, when he came into the world, as he says in Luke chapter 9, verse 56, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save. He withdraws in the beauty of his grace, later to lay down his life as a sacrifice for them. So friends, as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, may we take it, the symbolic bread and wine, with an understanding that what we're eating is a symbol of the eternal Son of God who came into the world to substitute himself in our place and to take our sins and to give us righteousness as a free gift to clothe our shame and our nakedness with his glory. May we appreciate what he's given us and may we delight in his gift. And I just want to tell you again this morning that God loves you and he's proven his love for you in the cross and he's provided all that you need. You need light and reality and knowledge of God. He's provided provided it for you in Jesus. Do you need righteousness? He's provided it for you in Jesus. Forgiveness, provided it for you in Jesus. The water of life, blessing, eternal life, he's provided it for you in Jesus so that whoever simply believes in him will never see death. So let's take the Lord's Supper understanding and delighting in this gift. May we worship the Father as we take the Lord's Supper in spirit and in truth. May we hail Jesus as the eternal Son of God, and may we glorify God and give him thanks for his unspeakable gift. Please stand with me as we pray.
Father, your gift to us in Jesus is unspeakably beautiful. And as we sang, Lord, there's no words that can express these things. So, Lord, I ask that you would take these words, these um, faltering words that were shared this morning, and that they would be pointers to the reality, Lord, that is you and your son and what you've done. We give you thanks and we rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.